Thanks for tuning in to the Know and Do podcast. My name is Justin Barton. Before starting this conversation, I recently had with Ken Potter called Put Your Foot in the Ring, Build Your Character, and Give Service. I want to share a bit about the Know and Do podcast and what I'm trying to do here. I have heard that one of the more powerful words in the English language is the word remember. I think it might have something to do with the well-known phrase attributed to George Santayana, which states, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. One of the goals of the Know and Do podcast is to speak with people who have experienced life, both the ups and downs, and are willing to share some of that wisdom earned and learned with those who are walking that path behind them. My hope is that something from each of these conversations touches the hearts of each listener and motivates them to do just one small thing a little bit better. This change of heart has the potential to help each person become a little bit better. And then when the individual becomes a better person, their family benefits. And when the family becomes a little bit better, the community benefits. And when the community becomes a bit better, the region benefits. And you get the picture, on and on, until the world becomes a little bit of a better place. This is one reason I feel that it is important to strive to develop wisdom by talking to real people with real experiences, both positive and painful. This is what the Know and Do podcast is all about. I have several more of these conversations lined up, but I'm always looking for more people with life lessons and wisdom learned and earned that are willing to share with me and the listening audience of Know and Do. My ideal conversation would be with someone who is nearer the end of his or her life than the beginning and has a story to tell and is willing to share the good and the not-so-good so that others can learn from their experiences. These conversations are also hoped to be a kind of legacy where the person involved can impart some of their more important thoughts and philosophies and lessons learned along with some experience that may have not yet been heard to their children, grandchildren, and on down the line for generations to come. If you know of anyone that fits this description and who would be willing to have a recorded conversation with me, please email me at knowanddopodcast at gmail.com and let me know. We can then start the process of getting it set up. Also, if you find the Know and Do podcast to be of value to you, please share it with your friends and family. Also, please subscribe to it on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts, and please rate and review us on that same service. You may also follow Know and Do on Facebook. Just search Know and Do and like us and leave us a note to let us know what you like most or what you would love to hear in future episodes. Now, on to the conversation with Ken Potter. In this conversation, we will hear as Ken shares how he sees, looking back, God's hand directing and empowering his life and his family. He shares the difficulties of, of a pretty strict childhood and also the lessons learned from it. He shares some lessons learned in life and death situations. He also shares his indomitable desire and will to conquer any obstacle that is in front of him, including the long and scary slog of building a successful business. He shares his experiences in working to improve the conditions of hundreds of orphans in the aftermath of the devastating earthquake in Haiti in 2010. And he shares how his wife and family have made him the man that he is today. And even though he probably wouldn't say so himself, he's a pretty darn good guy. 
Now open your heart and mind to any gentle promptings or blunt two-befores upside the head. Then be ready to act on those thoughts and become a bit better of a person yourself. Now on to the show. Well, Ken, I really appreciate you being willing to sit down with me and have this conversation about wherever this goes. So I'd like to start off and just uh, ask you where you come from. Tell me where you were born and a little bit about your childhood. I was actually born in Crescent City, California. That's on the California coastline, just right at the Oregon border. And it was kind of a beautiful place, but uh, so I was literally born 25 feet above sea level. That's the hospital. (laughs) So uh, my folks lived there. I'm the oldest of three boys in a family of seven children. Um, My parents were converts when I was I don't know, somewhere around seven or eight years old. So the only LDS connection on either side of my family is my mom had a brother who whose family joined the church. But other than that, they were solo. Good. So growing up in Crescent City, my family spent uh, a few days from that area last year for spring break. It's beautiful. We really loved it. What are some of the things that you remember most about growing up in that area? I spent a lot of time on the beach. My friends and I would go on the northern part, the cliffs. Uh, I'd sit on the cliffs and just watch the storms come in, the waves and that. But I'd spend a lot of time hunting agates down on the beach. It's kind of a solitary thing, but it was really cool. There was really some neat things down there to, to search through. The south end of the beach was Crescent City's named after a five-mile-long sandy beach. And uh, it's where I kind of ruined my mom's first brand new car. (laughs) (laughs) All right, you you started it. Now finish that story. Well, we'd go down there and try to surf and skimboard and things, a couple of my friends and I. But um, these little tributaries, these freshwater streams would flow towards the ocean. When they hit the sand, they would just spread out. They were never more than three inches deep, maybe. But they would get quite wide in that sand. Mom and Dad had bought this, the only first brand new car they ever bought, it was a little Volkswagen 411 sedan, and I found out on that beach that it would go 93 miles an hour. And when it would hit those little fanned out tributaries, it'd just skip across them like a rock. It was kind of fun. (laughs) But you know how teenage kids are, you think you're getting away with things until Suddenly the heater didn't work. Mom took it in and they said, where are you driving this car? Everything was packed full of sand underneath that I thought I'd washed it. Good enough to cover my tracks, but apparently <laughs> That's not. That's pretty funny. So what were the repercussions of that? You know, I didn't get in as much trouble as I thought I would. But I it was at a time when I started driving, obviously. So I was 16. And um, my dad is an interesting duck. He, his life story is one we'll get into, but I used to hook out a seminary with a couple of my friends, and some of the things we'd do is uh, I took it down to the practice field at the high school, and we'd just get flying across the practice field in the morning when the grass was just soaking wet with dew, mm-hmm. and pull the emergency brake and see how many times we could donut across the field. Well, of course, that cuts a lot of grass, and so I have to wash the car off before <laughs> I can take it back. And this one morning, I was at the gas station, rinsing the car off just as fast as I could, and 
so oblivious was I that I finally looked up and my dad was filling his truck on the other side of the pumps just <laughs> standing there watching me. He didn't even say anything. He just he just sat there and watched me. He didn't laugh. He didn't There was nothing. not even a grin on his face nothing. like I got you, huh? Yeah, he just kinda let it soak in and let me punish myself the way I would, you know, but it was it was kinda hilarious. Was that pretty typical of disciplinary actions of oh, your no. parents? Just no? No, no, no. No. My dad was pretty hard guy. He grew up in Minnesota and literally in the woods. He would actually put snares on the trail and they trapped their own. They didn't have a gun, so they'd trap meat that way. So they had to tackle the deer and finish it off in finish the, it off in the, the caveman the way, huh? Yeah. Just as a kid he was doing this. But wow. my grandpa was a very stern, strict guy. And um when I knew him, he lived in Klamath, just south of Crescent City. My dad built a house for him down there, he and my grandma. But but dad ran away from home when he was 13. Mm-hmm. So from my recollection, said that he had an eighth grade education when he ran away. He joined the Army. He learned to fly in the Army when he was stationed in Alaska. But he made his way down and did some work at Boeing in Seattle. But he was looking for a job and he didn't have any skills and they were hiring welders so they asked him if he could weld and he of course bluffed his way into it and figured he could learn by watching other people which he did and got the job and made his way on down to California and for a time worked in the redwoods as a logger following the the redwood trees and then he had an accident there that busted him up pretty good and so I can remember coming home from school one day and he was sitting on the couch and he had a letter in his hand he hadn't opened it yet. He was sitting there. He's waiting for mom. And he gathered us older kids and mom around. And I hadn't even known what he was doing. But he was trying to find another way of providing for his family. And he decided to take his California contractor's license to build homes. Hmm. I mean, to go from logging redwoods to getting a contractor's license to build homes seemed like kind of a jump to me now looking back. But he did. He he passed the test and he got his license. And so he started as a contractor there in Crescent City and for years built homes. Is that kind of a another on-the-job training that he did? Hey, I'm going to build homes and I'm going to figure out while I'm doing it? Or did he have that experience a little bit before that? What experience he had before that, I literally do not know. Hmm. I think that he built the house that I of my earliest recollection that we lived in. But um, there are a lot of things of my dad that I determined I would not do. And I think that most sons and daughters look at their parents and when they're trying to figure out who they'd like to become, they look at the good things of their parents and emulate. And there are things that every kid says, I'm not going to do that. (laughs) Some of them you still do, but that was one that his later in life he went to he moved up to Washington and became a commercial contractor. And then he went into excavating, started his own excavating business, and eventually got his Washington electrical contractor's license and was working as an electrician contracting electrical work out on the dams on the Columbia River. So it's one of the things that I admire the most about my dad was there wasn't 
I don't know how else to say it, but he wouldn't let anybody tell him he could not do something. Mm. If he determined to do it, he would do it. When he was building homes, he built the house. He did the plumbing, he did the electrical, he did the drywall, the framing, the concrete work, roofing, he did everything. And so I learned a little bit of that in my youth. So did you work alongside with him a lot with that, or just, just a little bit? That's what my did after school. Yeah. There was, my dad was not one that, well, from 12 years old, once I turned 12, and I'd been working with him before that for, I don't know what I started at, 10 cents an hour or something like that, I think. Right. But I can remember working at a quarter an hour. About the time I turned 12, I was making 25 cents an hour working with him, and I'd work on the jobs, but mostly I was the cleanup guy, you right. know, and trying to organize things. But he did have me cutting and hammering and, and doing some of that work. But at 12 years old, I had to buy all my own school clothes. Hmm. That was the, the standard. And so I had to buy it with the money I earned working for him. Right. And when I turned 16, I had to pay $150 a month room and board. So at the time, my friends just thought it was outrageous, you know. And of course, trying to earn 150 bucks when you're 16, 17, 18 years old a month to pay room and board, and you're working for him, and he's paying you low wages anyway. Right. I spent a lot of time, but it kept me out of trouble, I guess. But the interesting thing when I look back on it is that of all three of us boys, Every one of us owned our own business in life. So the businesses you owned in your own lives, I'm assuming they were, to some extent, successful, all three of them? Yeah. So, I mean, I think as you look back at that, you're probably thinking, well, I'm grateful for that work ethic, whether or not you enjoyed it at the time that was instilled there, right? It's kind of hard when you look at his, in my very early days, he was, when he was still logging, I mean, when we get in trouble, we'd have to go out and cut our own switch, all right? Yeah. So you get the thin one, and those really stung. But you get the bigger ones, and you get clubbed. You yeah. Know? So he had a very, very hard line to him. And yet that's about the time that he joined the church, and things really started to change at that point for him. So with that change of culture and perhaps change of heart, what are some of the differences that as you look back at that that you see that are most well-defined? Well, throughout his life, he, he remained in the church. They didn't go inactive, and he raised all of us children. My parents raised all of us children in the church. My dad passed away in, I think it was 2001, and um, my mom still lives in Wenatchee. I don't know, as far as the cultural difference... I'm not really sure how to answer that. Okay. But in a change of heart, you mentioned you saw some changes that happened there when about the time when the conversion happened. And was there much softening that happened? Oh, yeah. Well, this is the point. The, the softening went from, from the discipline, the hard discipline, into there were still times that he lost his temper, mm -hmm. but it wasn't as hard on us kids. And so he started softening up that way. And all through his life, he was a workaholic. And this was one of the things I said I would never be in, in trying to define the things that I wouldn't let happen in my life. He would go to work and be gone at 5 o'clock in the morning. And most days we wouldn't see him until well after dark. And so mom pretty much took care of and raised the family in that regard. 
cool. So tell me a little bit about your mom. What are some of the earliest and most powerful recollections you have of your mom? <laughs> the earliest recollection I have of my mom is driving the car one-handed, trying to hold towels around my wrists because I had uh, I was chasing my brother across our front porch and our front door was all glass. There were probably six panes of glass from the bottom to the top. My brother ran in and slammed the door in my face and I just got my hands out in front of me and I went right through the glass. So I cut both wrists, one of them pretty bad, severed the tendons to three of my my thumb and two fingers. Uh And uh, I didn't cut the artery, but I do remember huge volumes of blood. And back then when I got to the hospital, I remember him putting that metal bowl over my face, which I was fighting for to put me out. My mom was a lot stronger than she knew, but still had a lot of doubts and still does to this day about her abilities. And looking back, she laments a lot of the decisions that she made in raising her kids. Mm -hmm. And yet I look at the end result of it in my own life and I have that same, I can do anything that my dad did. And he was one of my vocal, I actually moved up here for a month or so to Wenatchee and I was looking for a change of work. And I, I was looking at purchasing his company, his excavating company from him and kind of running that. And he and I had a little fallout in a discussion of something that happened that was quite dangerous. Mm. And I let him know that there were better ways to do it and he was taking unacceptable risks. And it was after we dug out a young man who got buried to his waist. So mm. we're talking something that could have ended quite differently. And he just blew it off and tried to keep going. And I said, no, we're not doing this. It's too dangerous. You've got to change this. And he wouldn't. And so I got in the car and went back to Utah. And I found out later that he told others that if he had sold me his business, that I would have bankrupted it within a year. So that's pretty hard to take when your own dad can say that about his son. And yet I went back to Utah. I went back to work for a company I'd worked for before as an equipment operator. I worked out of town for most of that next year, which I hated being away from my family. But I read a book called Think and Grow Rich, and it was teaching you the power of belief. And so as I went through that, it wasn't until after that year I got laid off for the winter again, which always happened with that company, which is why I was trying to find something else. But that next spring, the work just wasn't there. I was losing, I was two payments behind on my house, my cars. I was losing everything. And so I had how old were you at this point? This was about 19, it was the spring of 1988, and Lara and I got married in 79, and our kids were born, the twins were born, no, we got married in 78, and the twins were born in 79, so they were, they were approaching 10 years old. So you had children, you're married, you had, you know, all of these responsibilities, and you're in this unstable employment situation all right now go ahead and continue thereafter and then you read this book and the spring nothing was happening nothing was happening and i went down to i finally left salt lake looking for uh work in southern utah i found an, an ad down near beaver of a traveling equipment company that traveled all over the country 
and they were advertising for the operator. So I went down there to apply. And by the time I got there, they told me that the job had been filled and it was no longer available. And then I got a call from a company that was working at the Salt Lake International Airport that said, if you can be here for the swing shift, you have the job. Hmm. So interestingly <laughs> enough, I have a little Volkswagen Rabbit. Oh. Okay. Now, it was very similar to my mom's 411 set in. It was a Volkswagen. They were small cars. Mm-hmm. It did 94 miles an hour (laughs) (laughs) up the West Desert trying to make Salt Lake. I got there. I got the job. I worked there for one or two weeks. Uh, It was very good federal wages, and they decided that at my skill level, they needed me on another job. But they cut my wage from $27 to 9 bucks an hour, and I told them, I said, I can't survive here. I'm trying to catch up house payments. It's not going to work. And they said, this is just temporary. It wasn't. They kept dragging it out and dragging it out. And finally, he said, on Friday, he said, I'll see you Monday. And I said, no, you won't. And that Friday, I went home and told Laura I just had to leave the job. It was We were still losing everything. It wasn't accomplishing what we needed. Right. The next week, I went in and started hustling work. And I went to the local equipment company and, like and big, talked big about... excavating type no, equipment? No, or what I was just looking for a backhoe. Just starting with a simple 580 case backhoe and my first job was at Morton Thiokol, northern Utah, out in the west desert Mm -hmm. digging in um, these lines for, at Morton Thiokol they have all these plants where they load the rocket motors with the propellant and it's a very hazardous operation obviously and they had put video feed into all these buildings because they'd had some of these buildings explode and had lost people had lost their lives and so they were trying to monitor all of this going on well they ran the lines just across the ground and then they had elk and deer come through and it just wasn't working and so they finally set aside money to put all this in underground conduits and manholes so i was doing the excavating for the electrical contractor that was then doing the installation of those items Mm -hmm. and so that's what i was doing but i i didn't have the money to send that backhoe up there on a transport. Mm-hmm. So Lara's in the rabbit with the kids, and she would leapfrog, and we went up Highway 89 all the way. <laughs> well, I you're just drove the backhoe. That 20 miles an hour, oh, you know, wow. all the way up there and out to that point, but that's how I got the backhoe up there, and that's literally the first job that I did. And it grew from there. What doors did that job open for you? That job was actually, it didn't, I mean, I... I could move pretty fast in excavating trench, and the way I did it was by the foot. Mm. And so I was getting paid uh, an amount of money, but I needed to perform the job quickly, which I did. And so I got out of that. I finished that job rather quickly, but it gave me enough cushion to where I could make the backhoe payment that was due that month. Mm -hmm. The equipment company agreed to lower the rent on it to get me started. And um, I was paying for it at the end of the month after I used it. And within four months, I I purchased a backhoe from them. But the hardest thing that I had in starting that business was figuring out how, not just how to make the money, but how much I had to make each week. And so as I sat down and figured out my hard costs, I figured how many days of the week I would have to work just to break even and how many days I would be able to make profit. 
And with that in mind, it gave me the realization that in two days, I could cover my costs each week of the month. And I would have three days of the week that if I was just busy finding work, that would be profit. That was, that was the gravy, right? Mm -hmm. That was the income that was going to come in and take care of all my expenses. And obviously it did. And from there, it taught me too that I had to hustle every job. I had to go out and sell myself. I wasn't used to that. I was a very, very shy person. I went on five dates when I was in high school and every one of them the girl asked me. I just didn't. I, I was not a confident person. Mm -hmm. But it's interesting how as you get to, through life and I realized that once you put yourself in that situation and you determine that you need to do it to get to where you want to go, this is what builds character. You will not build any character, you will not improve unless you step into the ring. You can sit out and be a spectator all day long, and you can learn by standing there or sitting there watching other people do it, but you don't have anything from that. And, and if you listen and watch people, they'll say, well, he was born with that gift, or he has that talent or that ability. No, you develop that ability by setting it, stepping foot in the ring. You may get run over. You may fall on your face. You may be totally humiliated, and I have been. I've, I've sat in job site trailers where each week you have this job site planning and coordinating meeting. I've made suggestions for the underground part of the work as to ways we could speed the job up with the engineer who designed it sitting there. And I've had him totally castigate me in front of all these people that I'm just a dumb ditch digger and I don't have a degree, I'm not an engineer, and what do I know? And so you still have to take that abuse, if you will, not let it define you, but still stay in the ring. And in doing that, your character grows, you become something that you don't see happening in the moment. You can only see when you look back. I mean, I had a very successful pipeline company that I built in Utah, contrary to my dad's saying that I couldn't do it. And it was just Laura and me, you know, that was it. But we, at one point, we had six track hoes and a couple of loaders and the backhoe and some other equipment. And it doesn't depend on other people. It's all on you. There's a principle that I've learned through all of my experience and it is belief. You cannot achieve, you cannot receive anything in your life unless you first believe that you can get there, that you can acquire that. And that kind of goes back to the, the book you read, uh, Think and Grow Rich. Is that kind of where that thought grew in? I don't or what remember do think? think and Grow Rich saying right. specifically believe and receive, right. but the Think and Grow Rich was all about positive mental attitude. Right. So yes, in a way it was. Mm -hmm. And I don't remember that book having impact uh, in subsequent years uh, in, in terms of me rereading it. But I do know that it very much helped me to find at least enough confidence to try. So that was kind of a hinge pin moment where you read that book and then you had the opportunity 
forced, forced into the opportunity. opportunity to put that into practice a little bit. Because huh? I can also tell you I would never have stepped away from a paying job to go out on my own. That takes a lot of moxie. Mm. That takes a lot. There's a lot of risk there. But when you're already in that situation and you're losing everything that you've built up to this point, we had a home, we had the mortgage, and I had built that home. I tried a building, I tried building homes in the early 80s down in Utah, and interest rates went to 20%. Who's, yeah. who's signing up for that? I got trapped in one of those in a house that we, in fact, had built for ourselves that we were then supposed to convert into a long-term loan from a construction loan. And they were trying to tell me, they were trying to get me to sign at 18%. And I said, I can't make the payments. It's not what I qualified for. And they said, well, they knew what I had into the house. They knew what the house was. They knew what it was worth. And they just looked at me and said, we'll take it if you don't sign it. And I walked out and I said, Laura, we have to put the house up for sale. So we put the house up for sale in a climate that was virtually impossible to sell a house in. They actually sent the foreclosure letters to us. And we received those two letters for which they charged like, I don't remember, $1,800 a piece yeah. is what it worked out to. But once, once we received the letters and we were looking at literally losing everything we had put into it, we found a buyer, they bought the house, we paid the lawyers and the bank off, and we got out of it with just a a little bit left over that we had enough to buy the next piece of property and try right. again. And so as you go through these things, if you just keep walking forward, I've learned that doors will open and solutions will present themselves. may not be the one that you wanted, may not be the one you expected, but it still opens and it takes you places and it's all in a divine design that you can't see. From this story you're telling me right now, it sounds like the first maybe up to 15 years of your married life it was kind of on this roller coaster. Am I am I interpreting that fairly accurately? Let's see. I a financial um, roller coaster. I, guess. I started that business in '88. We were married in '78. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah, because yeah. it was there were three times after I started that business that I came within a whisker of selling out. Mm. It was the second year that I got through. I finally had $23,000 and change. All mm -hmm. the bills are paid, mm -hmm. and I've got this money sitting here, and I want to invest it in something. I want it, yeah. I want it to be somewhere that I just, I'm not going to use it, right? This was in February. So I got the bug to go down and buy gold coins. So I went down and put it all into gold coins. Yeah. And it's pretty cool to hold that much gold in your hands. There's weight, there's substance. And it's shiny, you know. It's like, <laughs> so I have all that, and I got to keep it until April 15th when the IRS came and said, no, you actually owe us 20, I think it was $21,000. And it's so discouraging to work an entire year and to have, this is what you made, this is what the surplus is, and then have someone else come in and take it. Now, that wasn't state tax, because the state, you still in Utah, you still have a state return, so it was additional. To add insult to injury, I went to sell the coins back, and the price of gold had fallen. And so I got 18000 for my $23,000 investment, and it still wasn't enough to pay the taxes, but we battled through it. Yeah. That was probably the first one I just wanted to give up and quit. 
there was a year subsequent to that that um, it was just a really hard year as well. And I almost gave up on that one. And the third time I actually had taken my tax returns to a, a bigger excavating company that I was subcontracting work for. They wanted to hire me under their umbrella and have me run their crew, build mm -hmm. a crew. They didn't have the utilities. They were just doing the excavating the dirt side of it. And um, when I showed them the tax returns, they wouldn't talk to me. And it made me think, well, what was in the tax returns? Because I was basically still breaking even. But what they saw was that I was reinvesting everything I made back into equipment, into a company. I was building a company. And for me, I was just seeing the bottom line that at the end of the year, there's still nothing left. So they quit talking to me. They just hired their own people and started their own utility division. But I kept asking myself, why did they quit talking to me? And that's when I went back and realized that I had put, I'd actually made some good money, but I always paid for my way. I didn't want to lease. I didn't want to rent. I wanted to purchase. And then once I did purchase, it was pay it off as fast as you can. Get the asset in your name. Mm. And so I went ahead and continued a little further. And the interesting thing was that I knocked my guts out for five years building this company. Looking back on it, it was like for five years, I was pushing this, this track hole, this excavator up a mountain by my with my hands. Mm. You know, I'm just, everything is so difficult. It was all uphill. But at five-year mark, whatever five years were, and I hear that it's quite common for new businesses to, once they hit that five-year mark, they go over the top and things just take off after mm. that. And it's like there's an eternal law out here that says, we're going to test you. We're going to push you to see if you're worthy, you know, to achieve this. Now, you do hear guys that do dot-coms or whatever, and they make it all in an oh, idea, right, right. you know. That's not me. Never was. I went over that hill, and it just took off after that. And then it was still the early 90s. I hadn't heard of Dave Ramsey, but I started applying all the same principles. And I took all my payments that I had. I had the house payment, Lars car payment, my truck payment, a backhoe payment, and a trackhoe payment at this time. Mm -hmm. The house payment, I remember, was eight eighty-eight a month. The, the backhoe payment was pretty close to that. The trackhoe payment was almost 1100 a month. And so what I did was I took my truck, since it was the least payment, it was around 150 bucks a month, and it was the least of the term. And I just started grabbing the extra cash I could and making extra payments on it. When I paid that off, I took that 150 and applied it to my wife's car, which was about, it wasn't quite 300 so, so I roughly had $450 a month after I paid those two off to start putting towards a backhoe. When I paid that off, I now had that $450 plus that $800 a month payment on my backhoe to put to the trackhoe. Right. And when I got that done, I accumulated the trackhoe payment and I started putting those extra payments on my house. And within six years, I was debt free. How did that feel to become debt free? What were your emotions when that date happened? Only someone who's actually experienced it can understand it. There's a liberty, a liberation, 
that's pretty hard to describe. We don't realize that every one of these contracts that we signed, we are indenturing ourselves as someone else's servant. We're signing ourselves into bondage. And when people can get so used to being in bondage and just, well, I'm making this much, but I'm spending this much, and it's all working out, so who cares? But what they don't understand is that there's no liberation. There's no freedom in their life. They don't understand what it's like to not behold or be owned by anybody. And it's, it's a hard feeling, but it's a wonderful feeling. So how did that day change your life moving forward as well as, is that something that you have taught to others, your children included, and enlighten them in that way? Oh, yeah. I have always taught my children that. I actually, I, I did catch up in the late 90s. I caught up with Dave Ramsey, and I listened and realized that I was doing all of these things. I had the cash emergency reserve. I pay 10%. I actually paid as much more as I could. I learned the principle of fast offering and how valuable the fast offering is in really making your life complete. We, we pay our tithing, and we think that we've done what has been required, and we have. But when you go to fast offering, and that happened actually in the early months of the, or the early years of the business, I had hit one winter where I couldn't find work, and, and so I went to the bishop. And the bishop helped us. And after that, I worked down at the bishop's storehouse. I had the time. I went down there. I put in hours and hours and hours down at the bishop's storehouse. I was so grateful to be able to have this resource to help my family. And then when we got going again, it was like, this is a resource that needs to be there for other people. Mm -hmm. And so Lara and I talked, and we just started ramping up our fast offerings and giving back and making sure that that resource was there for other people. And then it's just as the scriptures say, you know, the blessings just keep coming. And we just, we were just blessed left and right. Mm -hmm. Everything was just working out until the stock market crashed. (laughs) (laughs) But that being said, when that happened, whenever that was, 2008, I had all these track holes. And this was all a little bit of consternation between me and my wife as I'd go buy this $150,000 piece of equipment and she's still waiting on a couch for the living room. <laughs> so we had to make some compromises there. And But anyway, the equipment, because of my desire to be out of debt, I was actually buying this equipment and paying cash for it. So when that crash happened, I didn't owe anybody. I owned all this equipment. Mm -hmm. And when everybody is scrambling for the little bit of work that's out there and they're cutting each other's throats and they're bidding it below the cost of just even the materials and then saying, how can you do that? Well, they're trying to rob from Peter to pay Paul and and just trying to do anything they can to survive one more day. Well, the writing's on the wall. If you're that far down and you're doing that, you're going under anyway. And so I stepped out of the whole game, parked the equipment, and just shut the business down. And then I'm wondering, now what do I do? It's all this free time. And 
it was in course 2010. Was it 2010 that the earthquake happened in yeah. Haiti? So, so let me let me stop here. We'll come back to that in just okay. a minute. I want to jump into something here. So, you are got married and started a family through this tumultuous time. What was her take on all of that roller coaster ride and everything up until you were able to push that track hill over the hill? Laura was wonderful. She's. I think it's got to be hard. For a wife who's so connected to her children and to see her husband trying to make all this work. And not only that, but having to take risks that she sees she doesn't want to take. Mm. And, um, but she was very supportive of it. And somewhere along the line, and, and when I built our homes, she realized that I'm not a quitter. I don't give up. I find a way to do I may not do it as well as someone else, you know, but I get better. I always improve each time I do whatever it is that I'm doing. When we moved up here, I had a gooseneck trailer with a skid steer on it that I was bringing up here. And we blew a tire uh, in Montana. And I got out, fixed the tire. And before we could get even to Missoula, I blew another tire. Well, now I don't have a spare. Mm. Wow. <laughs> anyway, I had to shuffle some tires around on the trailer. But I pulled the skid steer off and just used the skid steer to lift the tire up. As You know, lift the trailer up so I could get at it. But I didn't have the tools to change the to, to actually. My wrench was gone. My star bar was gone out of the truck. But I found a wrench that would actually work but it's in the recess of this tire. And it's hard to get in there and get it and actually get it on the lug nut and start trying to get it off. And it took me probably 45 minutes to get all these lug nuts off to get this tire off so I could move it. And at some point in time, and she reminded me of this later, she said, do you realize what you said when you were taking that tire off? And I said, I don't remember what I said. I'm trying to think that Hopefully I swear. Hopefully it wasn't too colorful. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't swear. But anyway, she said, you said that you were going to win. You said, I'm going to win. You might as well give. You might as well yield. I'm going to win. Hmm. And I stuck at it until I did win. Hmm. And that's kind of an attitude that I take. And she learned that early on in life. And so... She was incredibly supportive of all of these efforts that I made. And then at at, at a point, even when you're pushing that hard to build a business or to keep that business going, you realize that the business has suddenly become a living, breathing thing. And it will own you. And it makes demands on you. And it tells you that you have to work late. And that you have to work on weekends. And that you have to do all these things. And you physically have to just push back Hmm. and say no. And there's a battle that goes on between an owner of a business and the business itself on how much time you're willing to give to it and how much time you need to give to your family. And that's what I had decided I would never do like my dad did because he was self-employed. His business owned him and it owned him his entire life. And I said I wouldn't let that happen. And I didn't. But I didn't realize how hard it was. 
I didn't realize the actual war and battle that you would give every day. I have, well, my uncle has since passed, but he was one of the wisest mentors I've ever had. And I really miss, you know, being able to talk to him, but he owned his own business. And he'd always talk about the golden handcuffs that could come along with owning a business. Yeah, it's great. Make lots of money. But if you're not really careful, you got these handcuffs on and you can't get away from it. And it, like you said, it owns you. You can still, even though you own all the equipment and you don't owe, you're not indentured to anybody, you still can be indentured to that business. And it will own you. It will cuff you. It will tie you down. And now... I've sold that business to my son. He's 26, and he is rolling with that business. It's almost miraculous that someone that young, because he and I locked horns, you know, during the teenage years. It was mm -hmm. tough raising a son, and especially if he feels entitled. You have the ability, and you're wanting to give him things that you never had when you were young, and yet you remember and realize the lessons that your dad taught you that you hated at the time but need to be taught to him. And I finally told him, I said, you're not working for me anymore. You need to leave and go to work for someone else. Mm. I fired him. Mm. I fired my own son. But he went to work for other contractors. He needed the perspective of seeing that he had to, he had to do what that superintendent told him to do. He had to do it their way. He wasn't the one calling the shots. He's just an employee. Mm -hmm. He had to be able to get that reference and that perspective. And it's amazing how that worked. It was the best thing for him. It's extremely hard for me to do. And it alienated us a little bit further for a while. But this last fall, I went down to Utah. He had two jobs he couldn't cover both at the same time. So I went down and ran one while he did the other. And on that one, we did need to rent a D8 cat. I mean, it's a big machine. We had a lot of dirt to push. But that kid got in there on that big dozer, and it was just fun as a dad to watch him. He could handle that thing as if he was playing with a, a little toy in the sandbox. But even at his young age, I have video of him running a track hole when he was three years old. A big machine. I mean, it was not a biggest machine. It was probably a 30, 35,000 pound machine. But he could run it. He could run every control on it except the crowd. So it's like he dug a moat all the way around himself, three feet deep, but he put all the dirt in one pile. And so it was this, it was this ditch all the way around to where he had that pile. And so he learned to and loved operating equipment from a very, very young age. Mm -hmm. But to be able to have confidence in your abilities is one thing. To be able to work with other people in a line of authority is another. Right. And that made him a much better business owner, it sounds like, too. Yeah. Much better boss. Now he is learning to have the confidence to go out and sell himself and his abilities to other companies to do their work. But he's also learning, right now he's learning to estimate. We've been on the phone because he's bidding two jobs. And so we've been on the phone talking back and forth about things. And just, he sees everything. He sees it because when I bid a job, I always built the job in my mind during the bidding process. 
And in that process of building that job in your head, sequentially, you realize that there are some aspects of it that have to be done before others. And if you don't build it a certain way at a certain sequence, then you shoot yourself in the foot. Mm. You put something in that you now have to work around or may have to even remove in order to complete other work. And so there's this process that you have to go through. And it's neat to sit back and watch him learn and go through that. He's doing the same thing. He's going to be great. Kind of a similar feeling as sitting back and watching him as a three-year-old on that track hoe doing mm-hmm. that, huh? Very cool. When you operate equipment, there's, there's operators that can run the equipment, and there's operators that work with the equipment and with the ground. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting. I've dug in a lot of different soils on this earth, mm-hmm. and there's a grain to it. There's a way you need to actually engage that equipment to be able to least wear and highest performance on the machine. Mm. And if you do it with it, the machine will last longer. If you do it against it just as an operator forcing this thing to do what you want, you just beat the tar out of the machine and it gets sloppy and worn. That sounds like it could be a bit of a tie-in to life as a whole. So tell me a a story or an experience that you and your wife in raising your kids had a maybe it was in one of these times where it was a little bit stressful business-wise where there was a, a trial that you came together as a couple and as a family to overcome some trials that were going on. First one comes to mind was when the twins were four and Leslie was three Sam wasn't in the picture yet and uh, we were over at Lars parents house and the kids were playing outside in the front yard and we thought everything was fine next thing we know Rachel's been hit by a car Mm -hmm. that was the bishop's wife that lived down the street Rachel was from even before she was born we knew she was on top and she stretched a lot and broke my wife's ribs actually but in stretching you could see her stretch all the time Mm. in those last couple months before being born well when she was born we called her Tigger because she just bounced everywhere she went she was just on a spring she didn't walk she was always just bouncing (laughs) and it was cute and fun until she bounced out in the street in front of a car and when I, I went out over the railing and over Lara's parents' car, and when I got to her, she's mangled up in a pile of leaves. It was in the autumn, in the fall. And um, that's a moment when a parent realizes what they would give to have their child be okay she's not breathing her legs folded up underneath her and her arms around behind her it's other than that she's not bleeding but you know she's she's not breathing and the only thing I can think to do is to give her a priesthood blessing and when I said amen 
she began whimpering. And we got the ambulance there. We get her to the hospital. Uh, she's Her leg is fractured. Her arm is broken. And she's in traction for her fourth birthday in the hospital. Lars trying to hold the family together. I'm trying to hold the business together. And we're splitting between the hospital and home and business and, and trying to do all we can. And there was one day where Lara, she came home with an entire grocery cart full of toys from Toys R Us. She had a moment when she just... I don't know, she went somewhere else. She just had a moment where she couldn't say, I need this, not that. There wasn't an ability. We sat down, we took everything back, we sat down, we worked through it, and um, we kept going. And it wasn't the first time that we'd kind of been through that. Our youngest daughter, Leslie, when she was born, two weeks after she was born, we were at the 24th of July parade in Salt Lake. And she had been not doing well, but in her stroller, she was just non-responsive. So we rushed her to the hospital. Our pediatrician told us, he said, I need to call someone else in. This, I don't know. This mm -hmm. is beyond me. And so he called another pediatrician, and that guy came in, and he said, I think I know what's wrong, but by the time the tests are back, she'll be gone. Do I have your permission? Mm -hmm. What do you say? Yeah. Well, he nailed it. She had a viral infection in her intestines that had taken out all the lining of her intestines. So everything she ate, she was getting zero nutritional value from it. So they got her stabilized, and then they lifelighted her up to primary children's or university. They're both right there with one of them. I don't remember. And then it became me at work, and then I'd shower and go up and sit at the hospital and stay there during the night, and Larry'd come home with the girls. And um, we did that for a month. And kept trading back and forth. She'd come back to the hospital so I could go to work. And there were three children in that ward with the same thing, Leslie being one of them. And one of those other children didn't make it. And <clears throat> when you walk into pediatrics week, you could hear Leslie screaming. Hmm. Now, the only way to take care of her was to feed her IV, give her intestines time to heal. So through that whole process, she's pinned to the sheets so she won't tear out the IV. She's still hungry, and you can't feed her anything by mouth. She still has that sensation she's hungry, so she just screams and cries. Mm. And we'd unpin her from the sheets and hold her and try and comfort her the best we could. But that's pretty rough. But I could hold her feet down while she was laying on her back and she could sit up. That's one tough kid. 
That's just at a couple months old, right? Not even two months old. Not even two months old. Wow. And she would sit up. Now, she still is that way. She is one tough little girl. And all of my girls have been that way. I asked them to work, physically work, when they grew up. Didn't want them to be prissy. They've been able to accomplish things just like we did. You go through things you don't know that you can do until you're through them. And the only way you get through them is by stepping into the ring, doing the best you can. Yeah. I think every family goes through some things like that. To some things like that, yeah. I'm but, grateful that mine hasn't been to that extreme to this point. And I hope I hope I never have that to that extreme. We say that we would hope that we don't have to. But life is about character. And you can't build character unless you're in a situation where you have to make some real hard choices. And the more I go through life, the more I realize it's all about character building. And it's sad because in our world today, a lot of that is being taken away from people or people are refusing to get into those situations where they have to make a choice, where they have to make a stand. And between right and wrong, there are fewer and fewer people making that public stand. They may make it in private, but at some point you have to make that stand in public to really cement that character growth, to truly stand and be seen and be heard. Is there anything on that little portion there that you want to expound on before I go back to where you started talking about Haiti? So going back to there, you had put the equipment away and shut your business down and wondering what am I going to do next? Okay, go ahead and start there. I had served in a bishopric and I'd just been released um, just a few months prior to that earthquake in Haiti. And trying to make purpose of each day that there was a, there were two guys in our in our ward one of them had served in the state state department in the Reagan administration the other had just sold a very successful business that he had built he sold it but he was he started another one so it was kind of in that spot and between the two of them and the state department guys contacts they rented a 737 and decided to do a medical relief mission down to Haiti. And we landed about three weeks after the earthquake, I think it was. There were so many things that happened on that, but Lara pointed that out to me. I hadn't even heard of it. And they were leaving the following week. They had like 600 people that wanted to go. Well, they were looking for doctors and nurses primarily, former missionaries who could speak the language and translate, and then they wanted a few construction personnel and some, like, SWAT team. They took five SWAT members of different police departments that went down for security. And so the construction people, I went down in that capacity. And when I contacted them, they said, sure, you can go. And I said, well, what about my son? Because Lara said, this would be good for Sam. Mm -hmm. He needs to see. And so... It almost came down to Sam didn't go, but anyway, we went. 
And we were down there for two or three weeks before we came back. And going into a third world country anyway would be hard for most people that are blessed with the conveniences, comforts, and the cleanliness of the United States. And yet going down in a situation like that where there's still dead people in buildings and in the streets and all the devastation. But prior to that, I had been released in the bishopric and felt like I got pushed off a cliff and told to find my wings. You know, you're Mm -hmm. trying to figure out what's next and what you're supposed to do and needing to feel needed. So I did a lot of soul searching, pondering and going through that period of time. And then this came up and, and I went down. Now, one would think, okay, that'd be the end of it. The first night we landed, Steve's son was still working with another care organization from the United States, and he was on the ground in Haiti. He was looking for a place for us to to live, to camp. And we had landed in Orlando, and they were switching the flight crew and refueling before going on to Haiti, and we get this phone call from Steve's son. And And Steve is, tell me who Steve is again. Steve was a guy that was in our ward that used to work in the in the state department, the state department okay. that okay. had the connections okay. and that helped put this trip together. And so Steve's son calls his dad and says, bring 25 pizzas and don't ask questions. And so he gets off the phone and he looks around at the few of us that were the team leaders. And he says, this is the request. What do we do? Well, we looked out. We're not allowed to disembark. We're not at a terminal. We're just out on the tarmac being refueled and waiting for the flight crew to change. And we look out and we can see a building and the name of the business on the side of that building. It was, you know, an airport or an air service related company. And we got somebody, they all get their cell phones out. Somebody called Pizza Hut and somebody called Domino's and somebody called... Little Caesars, mm-hmm. and we're trying to place these orders from an airplane with a credit card, <laughs> asking them that they had to get them made and delivered just immediately, or we would be gone. Right. We couldn't hold the plane. The security on the ground had come to the plane to make sure that nobody got off or on that wasn't supposed to. And so we're talking to them and we're explaining what we're trying to do. Well, I think it was Pizza Hut that succeeded, but we offered a $100 tip mm-hmm. to the driver that could get it to the airport. And we told them where that building was and to look for that building and that ground security would meet him there and escort him to the plane, which, I mean, the flight crew was on. They were pulling the stairs away when we saw the all the blue lights coming across the tarmac <laughs> <laughs> with this little car, this little Pizza Hut delivery car. <laughs> And nobody on the back of the plane knew what was going on. All the rest of the people on the plane didn't know. They were just waiting to take off. Mm-hmm. She comes on, and she's handing all these pizzas up the ladder, and she comes on the plane, and we give her the 100 bucks and thank her for doing it. And all this pizza goes to the back of the plane to get put in the cargo uh-huh. in the overhead. And I told Steve, I said, you got to get on the intercom and tell these people that it's not for it's them. Not for you. <laughs> <laughs> Smell all you want. But yeah. So we land in, in Haiti. And I could count five lights out the plane window. We landed 11 o'clock, 11.30 at night. I think it was close to midnight. 
as soon as we pull up, there's just military, U.S. military on the tarmac, and all these pizzas go right off the plane. And it turned out that Steve's son was there looking for a place for us to camp, and he ran into the 82nd Airborne, which was camped on a soccer field in the middle of Port-au-Prince. Mm. And in talking to them, because they have security, they put up a perimeter. They had security posted 24-7. Mm-hmm. And they said, sure, you can camp here. The pizzas, they were grateful for because they had been living on MREs for three weeks. Right. And so that's how that happened. But that night, getting off the plane, I met Gesno. And at one point in this, my job was to make sure that the doctors who went out to help people and nurses did not go into buildings that were unsound, that were unsafe. There could be aftershocks. You just don't know. So that was my job was to proof all the buildings that they had to serve or work in before they would go in. Mm. And mostly there weren't a lot of buildings to to worry about. Most of them were down. Mm -hmm. And then uh, there was, the doctors were phenomenal. The former missionaries proved invaluable. The 82nd Airborne was in charge of taking out these these, uh, food transports and they'd leave at two and three o'clock in the morning and go to a pre-designated area and they had tried to give out tickets to the women to be able to come in and get a bag of beans or rice or whatever. But every time they went out, they had to hold the people back with their weapons. And they had a hard time because everybody rushed the, the convoy. Mm-hmm. And so that first night, I went to the soccer field first with a few guys to help set up tents. And we're setting up these tents, and these former missionaries come in, and they went and asked the military if when they found out about this food shipment, they said, can we go with you? Sure. Mm-hmm. So they went out with them, told them they could speak the language. They could speak Haitian, the French mm-hmm. Creole. And they went out. They went in the first vehicle, got to the point, and they got out and told everybody what was going to happen and how it was going to happen. And this is, I'm getting this second hand. I wasn't right. there. But when that convoy rolled in, none of the people rushed the truck. Everything was handed out in an orderly fashion. The commanders were astounded because they couldn't speak the language. And these guys come in and they just didn't, just with words, they can take a situation that was always hostile and on edge. Mm -hmm. And it completely went just like any other day under a non-emergency situation. But the short of it was, is that I went out to Gesno was building an orphanage, and I went out to his orphanage to try and prepare it. It was just the walls up and the and the roof on. Mm-hmm. Nothing inside had been finished, completed, and it had actually been shut down. And it had been shut down for construction, but he was going to have to move all the kids out there from three other buildings, one of which was completely destroyed. Mm-hmm. The other two had partial damage to it, but not structurally They were still livable. But he had decided because of the chaos in the city and no water, no food, that he would move them out. It was out to a place called Quatabouquet, which is just out on the outskirts of Port-au-Prince. So I went out there and spent 
three, four days out there preparing this for all these kids to come and live there temporarily. In that time, I got to meet and know Gesno and what he needed and what his vision was and what was happening. Well, it turned out that five weeks before the earthquake in December, his three-year-old son had been kidnapped, held for ransom. Ransom had been paid numerous times. They refused to give the child up, still just milking it for whatever they could get. And this is common. And so just your heart aching for a father that can't find his three-year-old son, and you can imagine what he's going through. I decided to do all I could to help him. So we wrap up our, our trip and we come home, and which was really hard. My car has a house mm. that I can pull into and close the door, and these people are just putting up tarps and living in tarps and makeshift tents. And it was, it was pretty hard. But I got hold of the U.S. organization and asked them what more could I do. And they said, well, you know, the building's going to be finished in July. And so we need to furnish it. We need to get all those furnishings down there. So I undertook, and I don't go ask people for money. Mm -hmm. I'm a person that I'll do everything myself before I need to ask anybody else. But I started asking around. And within days, I had one guy come up and hand me a $55,000 check for bunk beds. This building would house 200 children. So he hands me a check for 55000 for beds. Other people just came. It, it, it was... I look back now, and I see how the Holy Ghost is assigned and given to each of us as a gift. Many times we don't even know that we have it. The only way we know we have it is if we try to do something that will drive it away. Mm-hmm. And we can feel it then that, hey, you do this, I'm going to leave. But the rest of the time, we don't necessarily know. We take it for granted that, that we have this gift. Well, this gift would talk to me a lot. And I raised all this money and purchased all these materials and all these items and then found out it was going to take the only way I could get it into Haiti, two of these oversized containers, would be through a certain organization. It was the only guy I could find to trust, and the church used him. I even researched the church's avenues for getting in there, but sixty-five grand to ship two containers. By this time, there's probably 300 grand worth of stuff in the containers that I had. And so the guy came to Salt Lake. Well, before that happened, I I went to Heavenly Father in prayer and I said, how do I do this? I am liable to all these people who've contributed all this to see this through to its end. How do I do this now? And at this same point in time that this is happening, (laughs) I get the notice that nothing has proceeded on the building Mm -hmm. since I was there. No work. Nothing's been done. Mm -hmm. Why? Because there's $27,000 in back wages due to the workers who've already worked on the building, Mm -hmm. haven't been paid. And the work was shut down, and the donor backed away 
because the donor who had funded it to this point was handing the money to Gesno and letting Gesno build the building. When the people found out that Gesno had the money, they kidnapped his son. Oh. So with this revelation, now I have all these items to furnish this building. And I mean, I had wolf ranges that had been donated. Oh. Two great big wolf ranges for the kitchen. Oh. All the pots, pans, all the tables, all the beds, all the cribs, all the pillows, all the bedding. I had cleaning equipment to clean the building. I had everything for this. And I couldn't send it because there was no place to keep it where it would be safe until the building was finished. So I go to Heavenly Father in prayer. I say, what do I do now? And I love the Spirit's sense of humor. (laughs) (laughs) I stressed over this for I don't know how long. It was only a couple weeks trying to figure this out. And I'm thinking, okay, I can put up some. And the next phase was to hire the tile guy who was going to go in and finish sanding the walls and getting them ready for paint. Then the painting had to be done and then get the tile going. And it was a 27,000 square feet of tile Mm. work. This is a three-story, it's to to house 200 children. And so... I, I pray about it, pray about it, pray about it. And finally one day, it was just a voice came to me, put up or shut up. Mm. <laughs> Spirit doesn't speak like that. <laughs> to you it does. <laughs> uh, yeah. If you're that hard-headed, yeah. this is what it takes. I went to Lara. We sat down and we said, okay, this is what we're supposed to do. How do we do it? So we put up and went ahead and I made another trip down there and... Over the course of two years, I probably, I don't know, 25, 30 trips just doing, just overseeing and helping all the work proceed on the building. There was a 30-kilowatt solar system that had been partially donated. Mm -hmm. The panels were already there, but none of the inverters or all the the transfer equipment and the batteries, banks, Mm -hmm. and none of that. had. There was still 55 grand left owing Mm -hmm. for that that had to be purchased and... There's just a lot of different elements to this that had to come together. So we went down and got it going again. The guy that wrote the $55,000 check, he says, Ken, I'd like to go down there with you. And so I arranged for the painting trip, but I told him, I said, I can't go. I've got to come up with some money here to pay these workers to get them back. Well, how much is it? He wrote the check. And then he went with me. And then when he's down there, the first days, the first three or four days, violently sick. Mm. He ate some of the local food and violently sick. But uh, we got a lot of it painted. We bought airless paint sprayers, Mm. and I shipped them down there. I took them in my luggage. That was a challenge, but we got that to work, and we went through that place and sprayed the whole place with primer, and I went down and painted the outside of it with those same sprayers. And That paint is expensive in Haiti. You would think that material down there, they'd be grateful to sell. and But they're getting it. It's the old stuff that's been taken off the shelves here. It's out of date. We opened paint that was starting to evaporate and get really hard. And I had to reconstitute it. And then I had to get it to a consistency where I could put it on the wall and still have it be useful. But in all this, we did it. It worked. It was one miracle after another. When I needed something... It would materialize. Again, 
put your foot in the ring. When it came time to move those containers and 65 grand, I just put it out to all. I was keeping everybody that had donated informed on a little email that I'd set up. And I told them, this is where it's at. And within 24 hours of my sending out the email that we're now stuck for moving these containers, which I had to store this stuff now right. for almost two years before I could send it. Within 24 hours, another guy that I knew walked over with a $65,000 check. I'm still really amazed at the goodness of people. We got it shipped down there. I made a trip down with another guy. I was told it would be there on a certain day. He and his son flew down with me to unload it. We had to unload the containers. And then the containers were supposed to be offloaded of the dollies by this guy I'd con. He was supposed to have a crane there to lift them off the dollies. And the dollies would go back. And he abandoned that part of it. He got the containers to the site. But he had nothing to do with crane and said it was all my problem after that. And so I hired a guy. I got it all unloaded and secured in a locked place we'd prepared in the building. And then I hired another guy down there that I had been using and paying to do some odds and ends to get the equipment off the trailers. I don't know how he did it. (laughs) But one of my friends had donated a a little Cat 246 uh, skid steer. And I sent it down in the container. And uh, so I had to get that container unloaded and get that skid steer out. So we had that piece of equipment, and he used it. But the first trip down, the containers never showed up. And we waited and waited, and he wouldn't respond to me. So we finally came back, and it was, I think, four days later or five days later that the containers arrived. So I had to fly back down there and get that taken care of. But we, we got everything moved in. I had people that I'd met on the first trip. There was a, a guy from Arizona that was uh, just an amazing individual. And he flew down there and helped me assemble the bedding and assemble all this stuff that, I mean, we shipped it, obviously, all in still in its packaging. so the way we could get the most of it down there. And it's such a compact place. And I'll tell you what, you couldn't, th- you couldn't throw a handful of change in that first Connex once I got it packed. I mean, everything fit in there, just floor to ceiling, wall to wall. There was no space. When the doors closed, literally, you couldn't have thrown a handful of change and got it to stick anywhere. The second one, he pulled up, hooked up to it, and was starting to drive away before I had everything into it. But we had only about nine feet in the back of it, so we just started throwing loose stuff in right there. Turned out, when it gets to customs down there, they open to inspect them. You need to have something in there that they can take as their gift for sending it on its way. They hold everything ransom. Anyway, that trip and the, all those times I flew down there, all those trips, I had other people that went down and just loved the kids to death. One couple that went down numerous times. It was just a wonderful experience, but I learned a lot. I saw the ability of when you're working with the Spirit, what you can accomplish. I learned how the Holy Ghost is refining and purifying us. And if we engage and put our foot in and do what we're prompted to do, that character is built, miraculous things happen. We moved all those kids into that building. They have clean water. We got the solar system on the roof working. They had power. 
nice clean environment, big home. That's really neat. And that's a lot of miracles. A lot of miracles, a lot of people. A lot of good people. A lot of great people in there. Very neat. So one of the things that you and I have talked a little bit about in the past is service. Tell me your philosophy on giving service. During this experience, when it was winding down to the end, I got to a point where if I could have walked away from the world and just gone around the world doing this very same thing, if I'd have had unlimited resources or somebody to fund it, I would have just loved to do that the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. There is nothing that gives satisfaction as much as working in situations like that to help others. And so now it's service is, is almost, I think it's basically you could put it as the number one thing in life that you should be pursuing. If I looked at what I've learned, everything that Heavenly Father's given, everything that he's taught is not for me to keep. It's for me to turn around and give what I've learned away. Now, how do I give that away? I could give it with my hands and my feet and actively doing things physically. I can teach others to do the same thing. There are many facets to this that you can engage in to actually give it all away. And when you think of Heavenly Father and how he is trying to build the character in his children, not for this world, it's for eternity. He's preparing us for everything in eternity. And to be able to absorb knowledge and information and experience and be able to give it away to the benefit of others, to help them, it is a vital key component of what we must learn. We talk about being selfless all the time, but each of us have specific knowledge or specific understanding that we are supposed to give away, not with words, but with action. Getting in the ring, trying. It may not work the way we envision it, but this is the point. As you go in and work, trying to do what you envision, you're going to grow. You're going to learn. You're going to adapt. You're going to become. And that's the Holy Ghost's purpose, is to refine and purify us and get us sanctified to move forward in eternity. It's the believe in order to receive. But there's one step after that than to give away. You're not looking to, re to believe enough to be able to just receive. The next component of it is then to give everything you've received away in whatever way you're prompted to give it away. Hmm. You share it. You spread it around. I love that, that concept. It's giving me some really good things to, to consider and to think about and to put into action. So I'm going to kind of jump off the rails a little bit here. But I want to ask you a question that I think is, to me, I learn as much from people uh, from this question as anything else. Is there a, a scriptural passage, person, or individual verse that you most maybe identify with or look at. 88th section of the Doctrine and Covenants. I have to get glasses on here. <laughs> if you go to 
verse 32. He's just talked about the resurrection. Bodies that are prepared for a celestial will receive a celestial. Those who are prepared themselves to receive telestial will receive a telestial. And he says, and they who remain shall also be quickened. Nevertheless, they shall return again to their own place to enjoy that which they are willing to receive because they were not willing to enjoy that which they might have received. Next verse. And this one tells us all about Heavenly Father and what he's giving. What doth it profit a man if a gift is bestowed upon him and he receive not the gift? Behold, he rejoices not in that which is given unto him, neither rejoices in him who is the giver of the gift. Ingratitude. And then after that, there is so much that you can just ponder. I have pondered on this a lot. And again, verily I say unto you, that which is governed by law is also preserved by law and perfected and sanctified by the same. If we can't abide by the laws of the land as well as the laws of the gospel, we're not preparing ourselves to be preserved by the law, perfected, and sanctified by those laws. And then he goes on to talk about that which breaketh the law and abideth not by law, but seeketh to become a law unto itself, i.e. selfish person. Make my own rules for uh-huh. what I want it to be. But seeketh to become a law unto itself or himself, herself, and willeth to abide in sin and altogether abideth in sin, cannot be sanctified by law, neither by mercy, justice, nor judgment. Cannot be sanctified. All kingdoms have a law given. There are many kingdoms, and there is no space in the which there is no kingdom. That's powerful. But in those verses, it gives us a relationship to eternal law. And it teaches us that mercy and justice are all executed in accordance with those laws. On whichever level, in whichever kingdom, those laws are you're looking at where you are. But that verse 33 teaches us so much about Heavenly Father. And I have given a lot to people who have no gratitude or appreciation for it. I can sit here in this conversation, and if I could even go step by step and eliminate all of my learning mistakes, my learning curve, and teach a person how to achieve and accomplish without any of the mistakes, I don't know that there's anybody that could do it because we all think that we would have a better way. We would get partway through it and we think, eh, I think I, I think this is better. And that's, we're individuals. Mm-hmm. And when you look at this whole thing and how Heavenly Father's teaching us about what I just read, but all individually, in individual circumstances, it's incredible. It really is. I had a friend whose dad worked for a crane company in Las Vegas. My friend told me this story. He said one day they had this, new crane. But those 
heavy lift cranes are incredible pieces of equipment and very, very expensive. This is a multi-million dollar crane. This guy is out on a construction site, one of the employees of the company, big crane company. He's out on a job site. He's making this pick, this lift, and he tips the crane over. Now, Dave didn't tell me that anybody was killed or injured. The guy got banged up pretty good, had to be taken to the hospital, the operator. Don't know how much damage the crane did when it, whatever it hit as it was going over, let alone the load that it was lifting, let alone the crane itself and how much damage was caused to the crane, which was extensive. It couldn't be anything else but. But Dave's dad, when he saw the owner later that afternoon come into the office, he said, so did you fire him? Because he knew the owner had been to the hospital to see his employee. So did you fire him? And the owner said, no. He's the best crane operator I have employed in this company. And I'll tell you why. He's already gone over in his mind every single thing he did wrong. And he will never make that mistake again. Now, we know at the hospital, they probably had to extract the seat cushion that he sucked off when he went over. <laughs> that would be a really terrifying moment when all of that is happening and you have no control. But when you think about that experience, and here's an employer who was wise, because a knee-jerk reaction, he lost a lot of money. He lost a lot within his company. That crane's going to be down for upwards of a year being repaired, loses all the income that it could have made. And he does not fire the employee because he knows that this guy will never make those mistakes again. He knew exactly everything he did wrong. And when you think of life, and Heavenly Father's put all of us here, and we're here to learn by what? Experience. We make mistakes. We're expected to make mistakes, but we're expected to improve and to keep trying and to keep learning and moving forward. And the individual, when you really understand and think about the Savior's atonement, we all backslide. We all try and overcome something that we've done wrong. And then we think that we've already been forgiven for it once. We can't be forgiven for it again. It's not true. We're forgiven only if we are moving forward and learning and improving. True, there's probably, how do you forgive someone that quits and won't learn from their mistakes and stays in one place? Again, it's character. Character is improved by experience. So I'd have to answer your question that that right there is one of the most powerful scriptures to me that touches me in so many ways. There's so much there. What does it profit a man or God if a gift is bestowed upon a man and he receive not the gift? He rejoices not in that which is given. He has no appreciation for it, no gratitude unto him. Neither rejoices in him who is the giver of the gift, no gratitude. And you feel that way when you try and help someone and they don't appreciate it or they don't use what you've given them to improve their life or to try or to get back in the ring and move forward. But we still, even though it hurts, mm -hmm. we still keep encouraging them. 
to re-engage, try again, overcome, forgive, be forgiven, move on. Well, thank you for that gift. Is there anything else you feel like you, any other words of wisdom or experiences you feel you'd like to share? The one thing that I do regret is not writing things down in a journal. I have tried, and when I go back and I write, I read the things that I have written. There are times when the Holy Ghost is obviously giving you these thoughts and writing them. You're writing down, and you just sit there and look and say, did I actually write that? It's that powerful. But in all my life, there's been, I've had countless times, many spiritual experiences. One on my mission, I was, you know, maybe halfway through my mission, and all these guys are going home. These missionaries are going home. They're getting married two months and three months after they're home to women they never even knew. And I'm going, this is nuts. This is crazy. Well, what kind of girl are you going to marry? Well, I don't know. Well, don't you think you should know who you, what kind of person you would like to marry so that you can see where you are and what you have to do to be eligible, worthy for that kind of person? So I sat down and I made a list of qualities that I would like in a wife so that I could compare myself to them. And then, after that, again, revelation. I wrote, green eyes, blonde hair, five foot three, five foot four. And I wrote a couple other things that are personal. And then at the very bottom of it, I put, I will not get married until I'm home at least 18 months. <laughs> <laughs> I finished my mission, came home, worked with my dad for a while, got fed up with that, you know, the whole father-son thing again. <laughs> Went back to school, did a semester at the Y, and still wasn't sure what direction to go. So now I'm home a year, and I had a hang glider back at, in Wenatchee that I had built, and I decided this was in February, and I decided I was going to go home and build a trailer for it and tow it back to Utah. Now, I was working as a, framer, as a framer for a contractor in Provo, and he wouldn't let me off until noon on Friday, and I had to be back to work on Monday with an 800-mile drive to and from Washington, <laughs> plus try and build a trailer, plus I had a 74 Firebird, so it doesn't come with a hitch, so I had to build a hitch for it, and I'm about to go out of the apartment, and the phone rings. And my sister was at the Y and was going to go home with me. She had told her best friend from home, who was up at Rick's. And, oh, I hear you're going home. Could you come get me? I want to go home. Yes. Brenda, it's too far out of the way. I have too much to do. I'm sorry. I just can't. Different voice on the phone. Who is this? Ken. My name's Laura. Hmm. If I bring her down to the freeway, you tell me when, what time and where. And I'll bring her down to the freeway. I said, okay, burly exit in two and a half hours. I was in Provo. I didn't know how long it was going <laughs> to take me to get there. We hang up, and I start driving. And after I got clear of Ogden, I realized that I was in trouble on the time. Let's say I just, I've improved a lot on the laws of the land since. <laughs> <laughs> and the Firebird goes a little bit more than 94 miles an that hour. That Firebird did go more than 94, yes. <laughs> I was, I think, about 25 minutes late. 20 minutes late or something. I went ahead and came home, but that was the first time I met her. But I knew before 
I knew before I got to Wenatchee that I'd marry her. Mm. I knew it. I did build the trailer. I bought a piece of trailer that was there and modified it, got the hang glider on it. It was a bi-wing in two halves and um, got it all wrapped up and got the hitch on the car. And I called Brenda's dad Saturday night and told him to tell Brenda to call her roommate and tell her that we would be at the same place to drop her off at whatever time Sunday afternoon. Brenda's dad didn't thought I would just drop his daughter off in the winter, so he told her an hour earlier than I told him. Then I forgot the time change. Plus, I have this wall of plastic behind this car towing this glider, so I'm getting zero gas mileage and a lot of resistance. And in, the, in February, it was pretty cold, and Lara had a little Volkswagen Beetle, which no heater unless you're moving. And they're sitting in a trucking parking lot. When I finally got there, I just touched her on the nose and I said, now this tells you how naive, stupid, or arrogant that I could have been. I came across really arrogant. I said, I'll, ta- I'll make it up to you. I'll take you out when you come back to, to Utah. Because <laughs> I knew she was from Murray. I'd found that out from uh-huh. Brenda. And our first date was April 1st on April Fool's Night. And I went to pick her up. And her dad answered the door, and he says, So, you're not going to priesthood session tonight, huh? And I went, Oh, my gosh. I had completely forgot about conference. I'm Twitter-pated. I'm, uh-huh. Laura and I had been writing letters all this time between February and April. And uh, we went on our date. We were married the following September 29th. And it was some years afterward I remembered the list. And I went, I wrote at the bottom, I wouldn't get married till 18 months. And I started doing the math. It was 18 months and two weeks after I got home that we were sealed in the Salt Lake Temple. Mm. And then as I went back over, I can't find the list either. I thought I'd written it in my scriptures, but it's not there. I remember most of the things on the list. Mm-hmm. And I realized the green eyes. And the five three five four and the blonde hair. Mm-hmm. It's all revelation. It was revelation given to me in the moment. But I think as we search those things out in our minds and our hearts, our righteous desires, they're revealed to us. And we don't even sometimes recognize it until later. Oh, and then Laura told me after we were married that that day she talked to me Said she'd bring Brenda uh-huh. on the phone down to the down to the freeway. She hung up the phone, turned to Brenda, and said, "I hope he's pretty good looking because I'm pretty sure I'm supposed to marry him." Oh. She knew before I knew, but we both knew the same day. But still, we have rocky rights. But we've been extremely blessed, extremely blessed, powerfully awesome promises from Heavenly Father. I think I've abused you enough for today. <laughs> Thank you so much. Well, there you have it. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did, and that perhaps you are inspired to become a bit of a better person because of it. If you have felt a change in your heart and are motivated to do something because of that change of heart, my invitation is to get out there and do something about it now. Or, in the words of Ken, put your foot in the ring. If you don't act on it now, it's likely that this feeling will pass and you won't remember it. And as George Santayana said, you will be condemned to repeat the past. 
or to just stay the same, not developing more character, which can be just as painful. Once again, if you know anyone or are anyone that would love to share experiences of life in a long-form conversation, please send me an email at knowanddopodcast at gmail.com. As always, my experience is that wisdom and peace in this life come from knowing Jesus Christ and doing as he would have me do. Thank mm-hmm. you.